Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Good evening and happy new year. A blessed new year, I hope, for all of us in many ways, even in the midst of the difficulties, even in the midst of evil, uh, we are still being blessed um, by God. Amplify, of course, is a telephone talk show that looks at life from a religious perspective, and um, I hope you've felt the warmth of God's love in your life today, especially that joy, the joy that comes from sharing that love with others. Um, we're going to talk about Joseph. What Joseph? Saint Joseph tonight, but I'd like to begin with a story of faith and imagination. Jesus seemed to be lost in thought at the doorway of his home. His mother approached him and asked gently, Son, to what far-off places has your mind carried you? Jesus didn't answer. Again, Mary asked in her soft, gentle voice, Son, is something troubling you? Jesus still did not respond. Joseph called out, Son, your mother is speaking to you. As if he had heard a magic bell ring in his ears, Jesus looked up and asked, Father, did you say something? Mary and Joseph answered his question by smiling at one another, knowing that a mother's voice does not always bring the immediate response that a father's voice does. Mary placed her arms around Jesus and asked, Why don't you tell me what you're thinking? Jesus looked at his mother and said, You may think it's a foolish thought, but I can't understand why God gives two to each child. Mary didn't know what he meant at first, but she asked almost intuitively, You mean a father and a mother? Yes, Jesus replied. Mary explained, The mother brings life into the world. And the Father cares for that life by sharing his wisdom and strength with that child. Jesus looked down at the ground and said, with some hesitation in his voice, I love both of you, but why couldn't one do what two do? Mary quickly searched her mind as she often had to do when her son asked his many questions and answered, Does not the coin have two sides? Is there not both light and darkness? Yes, mother, Jesus said. Are you telling me that it is with wisdom that our Heavenly Father created? And it was Mary's turn to answer. 
Yes. Then she explained further, The mother bears the gift of life from God, but without the father she could not give it to the world. Both mother and father reflect the image of our God, who is strength and understanding on one side, and love and compassion on the other. Joseph listened intently and then spoke out. Each is very important. Mother and father, husband and wife, give their love and strength one to the other until each of them are able to give both. Yes, Mary broke in. Like the night becomes day and the day becomes night. Jesus thought for a while and then said, I think I understand, but I'm not sure. Joseph said, look at it this way, son. Man cannot live on bread alone or on water alone. He needs both. Perhaps only the father knows why for sure, but in his hidden wisdom, he has ordered that life enter the world through a mother and a father. A story of faith and imagination. Our guest this evening writes in the prologue to his latest book titled Saint Joseph and His His World. An old friend of mine, a novelist whom I much admire, asked me last week what I've been working on. I told him a book about Saint Joseph. He smiled and replied, St. Joseph is like a black hole at the center of the gospel galaxy. You know him by his effects more than by seeing the man himself. I know why he smiled, and I know why he compared the guardian of the Redeemer to a black hole. St. Joseph is inaudible and all but invisible. The only record we have of his life is a few brief mentions in the New Testament. In those mentions, moreover, he says not a word. I'm not the first author to note the irony of writing a book about a man notable for his silence. Yet every year, it seems several new titles come out. St. Joseph has an entire branch of theology dedicated to the contemplation of his life. It's called Josephology. And every Josephologist holds conferences, and delivers papers, all about a man who said nothing on the record. To sketch St. Joseph, an author must use something like his painterly technique of chiaroscuro. An artist depicts the surrounding shadows in order to accentuate the objects caught in a small shaft of light. The figure comes into focus because he is defined against the surrounding darkness. It is certainly no accident that some of the masterpieces are images of St. Joseph. A man like St. Joseph can become indistinct when we talk too much about him. In this book, I want to talk about his world, the society and culture of the Judean kingdom, the workplaces where he practiced his craft, the villages that he called home. It was a hot climate, so we will allow him to spend his time in the shade while we contemplate his works. I do not know if I am skilled at my craft as St. Joseph was at his. I suspect that I am not. We can be sure, though, that 
he practiced his craft as well as he could. I hope that I have practiced mine as well as I can. And I think that's true for all of us. Our guest this evening, uh, for me, he is uh, well known as perhaps the most frequent guest on Amplify. That's the way I would present him to you. But he's so he's so much more than that. And he was on Christmas. They call an Amplify special program Christmas morning. We were on from quarter to one until five o'clock, uh, talking about Christmas and hoping giving people some hope and something to be thinking about. That's Mike Aquilina. That's his name. He's a popular author of church history, especially the study of early church fathers, the executive vice president and trustee of the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology, which is a research center based nearby in Steubenville, Ohio. He is a contributing editor of Angelus Magazine, the general editor of the Reclaiming Catholic History Series from Ave Maria Press, and we've talked with him about some of what he's written there. He hosts. He also hosts The Way of the Fathers, which is a podcast produced at catholicculture.org. And um, Mike is also the author or editor of more than 50 books. Mike Aquilina, welcome back to Amplify. Hey, Father Ron, thanks for having me back. How nice to have you. Yeah, it's not so long ago, just about a week ago. <laughs> yes. Tell us a little bit then, with, that, with what you wrote in your own introduction— Mm-hmm. Uh, tell us a little bit about why you wrote this book. What what did you hope to accomplish by writing a book about St. Joseph? I've always been attracted to him. Uh, he, he, he was an important figure in my home when we were growing up. There was an image of St. Joseph uh, that, that hung there in the house. It still does, actually. My sister's living in the house, and the image of St. Joseph is still there. So he was kind of there as the protector. He's, uh, he usually shows up in any photos that were taken in the house, because we got the best light at that spot. So yes. I often say that St. Joseph is photobombing whenever I look at old pictures of the family. Uh, my mother had a deep devotion to him, and she attributed um, the survival of my older brother uh, to the intercession of St. Joseph. Uh, So she named my brother Joseph, violating Sicilian custom. He was supposed to be named after my grandfather, but she named him after St. Joseph Mm -hmm. instead. So he was an important presence in our family when I was growing up, and I came to a keen appreciation of, of, of him and his life. As I um, as I got married in adulthood, and as then as I became a father, and I, uh, I I I recognized how hard it is to do those things, how hard it is yes. to be a husband, how hard it is to be a father, and uh, and how hard it is to work. You know, Saint Joseph is is honored for all of these things as a father, as a husband, and as a worker. You know, he has his feast day just for his labors. So all these all of these reasons kind of conspired. I, I have to admit, though that I've written a lot of other books before this. And I, I think I put it off and put it off and put it off because I was so intimidated by the subject. He is so great a man, and he left so, uh, so light a footprint, you know, if you, if you think about how little uh, the New Testament gives us on his life. So, so he, was, uh, he was somewhat intimidating to, him, to me, and it took me a while to get to this book. Well, your timing was impeccable, and uh, maybe maybe the heavens is is a part of divine uh, um, plan. Had you writing this book before you knew that just a couple months ago, uh, Pope Francis wrote an apostolic letter titled "With a Father's Heart" about Pope Francis. 
<laughs> indeed, indeed. Uh, you know, there, I, I, I believe there are no coincidences. So I thank right. God for this gift that He's given. Um, but, uh, but I found out that my book was in the warehouse on the same day that uh, that Pope Francis made the announcement that we in the Church would be celebrating a year of St. Joseph beginning that day. Mm-hmm. And so he puts out this beautiful letter about St. Joseph, and, uh, and he makes that announcement. And, and I was just sitting down to make the announcement of my own book at that time. And so I was able to, uh, to announce both on social media, and I was very happy about that. Many people made the joke that Pope Francis declared, declared the, the year of St. Joseph in honor of my book. <laughs> <laughs> and that was December 8th of just this past year. Yes, yes, just a couple weeks ago. So it it did uh it was perfect timing really and it did generate a lot of interest in the book. Um we were able to to get ad, you know advance orders on that day and then uh we were able to get it in into a lot of people's hands before Christmas, which is what we wanted. And um and and we're already getting good good feedback, good reviews from the readers. And um I don't know if that, if it's appropriate for me to say it or accurate, that I really think your book and the Pope's letters, the letter, apostolic letter, uh, complement one one another because uh, he approaches his apostolic letter describing Joseph as a beloved father, a tender and loving father, uh, an obedient father, accepting father, a father who is creatively courageous, a working father, and the father in the shadows. Now, there's you talk about some of those things. I do, and and the the Holy Father and I are both very much concerned about about uh, Joseph's abandonment to, to divine providence. That he was willing to work with God, he was willing to accept the graces, even when they were hard, even when they were difficult, when they were challenging. He was able to to conform himself to the will of God, even when it when he knew it would be very demanding of him. Uh, so, so we both have that, uh, that, that same concern there. It's at the heart of his letter. It's at the heart of my book. Now, say a little bit about your approach uh, in your book to him. And um, uh, Scott Hahn explains it so very well in a foreword. Yes, I, I did try to do something different with my book. A lot of a lot of books about Saint Joseph will lean heavily on legendary material, and there's a lot of legendary material out there. It's imaginative, it's fanciful, and I believe there's a place for that. Um, but uh, but I, what I wanted to do was was tell the history of Saint Joseph. And in order to do that, I wanted to tell a bit about the history of his time, and especially about one figure especially who was a dominant figure in that time and that's uh king herod herod the great who played an outsized role in world history certainly in local history and already while he was alive they were referring to him as herod the great because of his remarkable accomplishments so i wanted to talk about what it was like to live in that time what it was mm-hmm. like to work in that time if you were a, if you were a craftsman uh, and uh, and and what it was like to uh, to live in 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 a climate like that if you were a member of the clan of David, the the, the ancient king, uh, who uh, who who was foretold in prophecy as uh, as being the, uh, the the father of a great house that would rule in the land forever, and yet he had been depo- his his line had been deposed centuries early. So the the Jews of that time expected a return. Of, of King David's line to the throne. Joseph was from King David's line, mm-hmm. and so 
the, the family must have lived with some uh, trepidation, really, some wariness about about um, about how they stood with King Herod. Uh, he was a very suspicious man, a very jealous man, and he would have he would have uh, worried about um, about about a a son of David taking mm-hmm. his office. Well, let's talk a, about uh, some of uh, your approach, the way that uh, you talk about uh, Saint Joseph and uh, his his world and. Um, uh, you didn't mention one chapter that you know I would be interested in, and that's mm-hmm. Joseph and his angels. Yeah. So we'll get there at yeah. some point. So talking about St. Joseph's world then, you speak about uh, an alert expectation that people lived with that day, um, that the Lord God was fulfilling his plan through their ordinary activities. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. Well, you know, you have to you have to go deep in the history of the people in order to understand this. Uh, the Jews were a very literate people, and they were a very literary people. They were keen to preserve their history, their genealogies. Um, they they believed that so much of their history had been guided by God Himself, that they were His chosen people. So so His so their history was a record of God's actions in the world. They were careful to preserve it over time. And so they were raised with this. They heard the stories in the synagogue every, every Sabbath. And they, uh, they celebrated the stories in the feast days every year. So history was an important, an important thing for them. Prophecy also was an important thing for them. And the prophets of what we call the Old Testament predicted a time when, a, when someone from the line of King David would rule again from um, from 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 Jerusalem, uh, there would be a Messiah, an anointed ruler who would who would take the throne, uh, probably be a priest king, and uh, and would rule. So there was a keen awareness of that that you took into your everyday. Joseph, as I said, came from the family of King David, so he would have been aware of his special status in God's plan, even if that status wasn't recognized in the wider society. He knew that it gave him, it conferred a certain dignity. And we can imagine that so many of the characteristics of King David were passed along in the home. I like to imagine that the Holy Family was musical, that they, mm. they enjoyed playing and singing music because King David was a great musician and, and composer of songs. I like to think that this was preserved as a tradition in the family, that it was passed down from generation to generation. Uh, it's not something we think about, but but they they certainly would have sung songs, especially about their great heritage. So yes, as they did their daily work, they they had a sense of the significance of of their own family in this sweep of history, and of their own actions. That they they knew that just by fidelity to their past, to their tradition, to their inheritance, passing it on to another generation, that they were all important links in the chain. When they went to work every day, they were doing God's will. They were, they were keeping the momentum of, of, um, of God's plan for the next generation. And so it was not a question of whether the Lord was active in that moment of history, but rather how he was active in their yeah. particular circumstances. And is there a sense in which we should be living with any such expectations? Yes, absolutely. Uh, you know, prophecy isn't so much foretelling the future. It's discerning God's pattern in the, pl- in the present. So we look at the past, and we, and we see the way God has acted all through history. How does he 
accomplish his will? Um, what does he allow to happen? What does he, what does he, he um, uh, bring about uh, through his, his direct actions? How, how do all these things happen? So we stay alert to the signs of the times, and we try to see how God is acting in our moment now. Uh, that's something that we should be doing every day, just looking at our own soul, you know, examining our conscience day to day, seeing how we stand in relation to God, and, and, and seeing what this means for our lives. And uh, do God's promises, God's revelations come before they actually occur so that man may properly understand them? I think God prepares us all the time. And of course, that is a pattern that's there in Scripture, uh, that, that God does reveal himself uh, through, through actions, certainly, by guiding the course of history. He's, he's, he's guiding his people, and sometimes uh, by, by stating things fairly bluntly through the prophets. But people don't always want to listen, and so they'll even dismiss the prophets, or they'll, they'll uh, willfully ignore them or, or misconstrue what they say, and we can do that just as well today. Uh, it's important for us, I think, to live in a community of faith, as best we can. The Church is our community of faith. We can check, give ourselves a reality check by asking ourselves, am I conforming um, to the guidance of the Church? Am I living by the precepts of the Church? Do I, does my moral life re- reflect the, uh, the, the label Catholic? Uh, would people know I'm a Catholic just by the way I live? Um, so there are all these, these, these questions we should be asking ourselves if we want to ask if, we're, if we're, we're being faithful to God's plan, to those, to those prophecies, and if we're discerning His will in our own times and in our lives. And so is there a way that we can learn from how God has worked in the past, even though His ways are filled with mystery? I think so. Uh, one thing is to, to, uh, to, to study those ways, to, to, to steep ourselves in sacred scripture, uh, especially read in, the lo- in light of um, the interpretations uh, of, of the saints, but to steep ourselves in sacred scripture. I know that right now a lot of people have kind of jumped on this wonderful bandwagon about listening to the Bible all the way through yes. in the course of a year, this year. Mm-hmm. And this is wonderful. I think this is great. Well, you know, just by listening to the Bible, hearing it proclaimed, letting it come into, into our minds and into our imagination that way, that's, that's the first great step. The other great step is to think about it, to pray about it, to ask God, what on earth did you mean when you said these things in the book of Leviticus <laughs> or in the, in the oracles of Isaiah? What exactly do you mean? Because it's pretty puzzling to me. I just yes. don't get it. Or I find this boring. Help me to see why this is so important and why it should be exciting in my life. Okay, hold on, hold your thought. <laughs> we need to take this break and then we'll be right back. Welcome back to Amplify, where our guest is Mike Aquilina talking about his latest book, St. Joseph and His His World. Is When I cut you off, Mike, is there something more you wanted to make a point? No, no, no. I was excited about this, this year dedicated to the Scriptures and how many people have signed up. It became the number one podcast on, on Apple. Uh, th- I just think that's wonderful. And there's 
let me say this. Does history tends sometimes, does it seem to repeat itself so that the things that happened in the past, some of the themes and the way in which God intervened are, are for us uh, ways to understand what might be happening now? I, I, think, I think that there are patterns. It's not quite a repetition, but there are right. certainly patterns. What we find is, uh, is that there's a, there's a certain uh, repetition of what happened uh, at, the, at the beginning of, of human history. You know, we, we have the story in the book of Genesis of the creation of man and woman, and they're created good, and they fall from grace. And and then God uh, finds them hobbled, you know, and uh, and they see their 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 condition. They see the consequences of their sin as a punishment from God. That's how they experience it from it because they have distanced themselves from God. And then he he he. He, did, he rehabilitates them on, on the, the long plan, really. Um, so that's something that does repeat itself over time, that, that then he creates a people, the chosen people, and they, they essentially sell themselves into slavery, and then they have to be liberated. Once again, he creates them as a nation, and they fall while they're in the desert. After they were miraculously delivered from, from slavery, they fall into idolatry, and again, they have to be rehabilitated. This is the pattern. There's creation, fall, and redemption. And then it happens in an overarching way on a grand scale, because, of course, our Lord himself, Jesus Christ, came came into the world, came into, into history, into time, to redeem all of those generations, to recapitulate all of those things that had happened down through history, and, uh, and, and save us. Right, and so um, it's not so much that... Uh... Well, history does seem to repeat itself, the themes in in, in different ways, yes. uh, and we're given an opportunity to change our wrongdoing, and we may, you indicate we might pray with uh, um, the, the, the culture we're talking about now in that we, f- we find happiness in a place or state of mind where God does not intend us to be that Lucifer does. And so we, we have reason to pray, how long, O God, will you forget us forever? And we have our own memories. And are these memories that we should keep alive through our understanding of sacred scripture? Yes, you know, so, much, so often um, uh, we, we see that, that we, we see the things of the world and they're good because God made them good. So they, 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 they're attractive to us, and, and they will make us happy if we, if we order them rightly. You know, if we su- subordinate all of our loves in life, all of our fears in life, to the love of God, to the fear of God. Um, but we don't want to do that. You know, we want to, we want to um, come up with an order of our own. And these orders are disorders. They make us unhappy in this life. And, and the, the thing is that God respects our freedom. God honors our freedom. He lets us do what we want. That's how much he loves his children. And he lets us go there uh, and, and, uh, and, and, and suffer the consequences, because the suffering is for our good. The suffering is how we learn not to do those things anymore, or not to do those mm-hmm. things again. Um, 
we, we again, that to, to learn that lesson is a choice that we have to make. Um, but he has given us kind of the mechanism for learning that just by suffering the consequences. What we see is that suffering, the consequences of sin, uh, can be a redemptive act for ourselves and for others. Our Lord himself, Jesus Christ, who was sinless, still suffered on behalf of all of us when he was crucified. And he showed us how we could suffer uh, in, in the course of our lives. And so, um, like Solomon, you point out, we, we are free to use or, or neglect God's gifts. Yes. Um, that uh, some of the things were happening then are happening now, mm-hmm. where Christian churches are being desecrated throughout mm-hmm. the world and um, sacrificed to idols. Yes. Uh, and we seem to be moving to forward uh, to a lot of different things that have occurred in, in the past that we need to learn from. Let's go back just a little bit, and uh, you you take, um, let me see, 13 pages to trace uh, the history, a little bit of history to the birth of, of Joseph. Tell us a little bit about uh, the birth of Joseph and how, in fact, divine providence, there's a divine plan in that. And at the same time, um, that's how Nazareth came to be founded, wasn't it? Yes, it's an amazing story. We learn a little bit about it from the Holy Scriptures, but we also learn a bit from modern archaeology. Um, uh, what, what happened, of course, was that, you know, King David ruled well, uh, and he ruled for a long time. His son Solomon ruled not as well, but he ruled for a long time. Uh, and, and, uh, and soon after Solomon, things started to fall apart in a big way, um, and the, the kingdom was divided. It was weakened. Uh, vulnerable because it was divided, and so uh, so the the neighboring nations just had their way with the kingdom. There was uh, there was conquest, there was exile, and many people from uh, many many people from the twelve tribes of Israel were dispersed to the nations. Uh, there was a huge population uh, exiled to Babylon. Now. The Persians gave them the right to to move back eventually, but most of them didn't. Most of them stayed in Babylon. They would live in their enclaves there. They would keep the law, the ancient law, uh, and and live in their neighborhoods, but they were prospering in Babylon. Uh, be, they were an intelligent people. They were they were they were good at their crafts, and they could make a living there. So they stayed. What we find is that um, around 100 B.C many people started to move back to the Holy Land. Many of the Jews started to move back from Babylon to the Holy Land, which was, which was a, an arduous journey. You know, so for them to make that move, it was a big decision after they had been living there for centuries. Now, most of these people had never set foot on the ancestral lands before, but they were moving back because they believed that the prophecies were about to be fulfilled, that the day of the Messiah was coming. They knew this from the, the predictions that were in the book of the prophet Daniel that, that, uh, that said that the Messiah would come um, in 490 years from, from Daniel's time, 70 weeks of years. So they, they did the math, and they found that the time had come. So they started to move back. And, uh, and, and uh, the, the descendants of the clan of King David uh, were especially concerned about this because they believed that they would eventually uh, be the royalty in the, in the, in the, in, in the Holy Land. And so they, they created two villages there out of nothing. 
these places had not been occupied before for hundreds of years, archaeologists tell us. And then suddenly, in 100 BC, there, the, the villages just sprang up. One was called Nazareth. The village of the branch, and that refers to Isaiah's prophecy about a shoot coming up from the stump of David, that netzer, um, that shoot, that branch. So there, there you have one village named from that prophecy. The other village was called Kokba. Um, which was a star, another symbol of the Messiah from the ancient prophets. So these two villages um, are small villages, about a hundred residents each, but they 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 were they were filled with people from the clan of King David, descendants of King David, who moved back to the Holy Band, the Holy Land, because they expected the Messiah to come in their lifetime. So Joseph was born into that clan in in Nazareth. Um, uh, it's uh, sometime um, in that, that first century B.C. And um, the residents of those two towns, Nazareth and Kochba, were alive to the possibility, and you indicate perhaps even a probability, that one of them would bear the Messiah into the world. So this was a very active belief. Yes, yes. Uh, the the thing about the the clan of David is that they were very careful about keeping their records in the family. Um, we have this from historians in writing in the 100s A.D. that that the family still had its records, the genealogies that 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 stretched back through centuries and even millennia, that they had been very careful uh, to keep the names from generation to generation because they believed that this would be an important thing um, to show, their credentials, their, uh, their pedigree in order to claim the throne. So yes, this would have been a very active um, expectation, and as I said before, an active sense in the lives of individuals, that they had a certain royal dignity that came with their ancestry. And um, tell us a little bit about the Feast of Hanukkah and um, how important is it to understand history? Well, in order to, to understand Hanukkah, you know, you have to go to the Deuterocanonical books. The books are in the, that are in the Catholic uh, canon of the Scripture uh, of the Old Testament and also in the Orthodox canon. Uh, and you read in the book of Maccabees that, that, uh, that in the... In, in the in the years we're talking about here, the first and second century uh, BC, um, the the, um, the, uh, the 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 Holy Land was was ruled by um, by Syrians, Greek Syrians, and at and at one point these these Greeks tried to impose Greek culture on on the Jewish people. Uh, they wanted them to stop circumcising, stop observing the law, stop keeping kosher, and the uh, the uh, the king uh, went so far as to uh, as to profane the temple, you know, to splash pigs pigs broth all over the temple walls in order to um, to to profane it, to to render it unfit for worship, and and so um, so. So where was I going with this? Oh yes, so so this caused a rebellion, and the Maccabees were the um, were the resistance of, uh, among the Jews. So they eventually prevailed over King Antiochus, and um, and they were able to regain Jerusalem, regain the temple, and rededicate it for sacred worship. And when they did that, that's what was celebrated at and. At Hanukkah, that is the the festival that remembers this moment in time when the um, the temple was recovered 
and purified and given back to sacred worship. Joseph and uh, his uh, king, tell us a little bit about the political situation uh, that leads to uh, Herod's uh, appearance. Um, It it almost sounds like uh, the political situation then reflects something of our own. Uh, Yes, well, it is... um... It is a fascinating time. Uh, as I said, the, the Maccabees had reconquered the land from a much more powerful uh, world, world uh, power, uh, the, the, the Syrian Greeks. And they, um, they, uh, they, recovered, they recovered it. They didn't rule well. You know, sometimes warriors win the war, but they don't know how to lead a nation. They can lead you in battle but they can't lead a nation through the day-to-day operations. And they didn't rule well. Uh, they, they didn't treat their people well. They were known for, for horrible massacres. Uh, there, were, there were many rebellions while the Maccabees held the throne. Um, and uh, one thing they did, though, that, that, that was good for the country uh, economically, was that they forged an alliance with Rome, which was this rising world power. Um, and uh, and so they forged that alliance with Rome. Rome helped them to prosper economically, but Rome did not like the way the Maccabees were ruling, and uh, and uh, they didn't like the fact that the Maccabees were always plotting against each other. And Rome began to fear that that uh, they would lose this land, and they would they would um, they would then lose that that road they had for trade through the country, and so. Eventually, they wanted to install someone they thought would be more reliable, and the man they chose was this, uh, this tribal leader named Herod. Herod was, was already known as a warrior on the world scene. He was a master diplomat. He was an Edomite, not a Jew. Uh, so, so he came from pagan lineage, uh, mixed lineage, actually, and, um, and, and they installed him as king. Uh, and... Um, and he was kind of a remarkable guy. He was involved with all the major world figures of his time, Mark Antony, Cleopatra, uh, Augustus Caesar. And he showed himself to be um, a, a prodigy at diplomacy. He was able to, to sit down with these great leaders and get what he wanted. And, uh, and he, had, he, had, he had an iron will, but he had a way of uh, persuading people to come around to his way of thinking. Um, he was able to, to, um, to establish himself as a great power and, and, um, and project this image of, of himself as something extraordinary. He did this in two ways, mostly. One was by great architecture. Herod was a master architect himself. He had stunning artistic sense. And he built some, many things that are still standing, uh, but he also set some wor- record, world records uh, by some of for some of the things that he built. Um, he was a remarkable architect, and he was a, a prodigious murderer as well. And these two things he used to impose awe and terror on his people. He would, he would put up great buildings in order to, to, um, to impress the people and cow them, because the buildings were a symbol of his power. But he, would all, he was also a murderous tyrant. And he would commit murders, massacres, in order to make his people afraid of him, because he was afraid that his rule would end as, his, as the Maccabee rule ended uh, with violence. But it was also, man, you point out, of uh, undeniable charisma. Yes. 
he earned that name Herod the Great. He was, as I said, a master di- diplomat, and he was able to forge treaties. He was able to, to, to recover all of the lands that had been lost from, from ancient times. So during his lifetime, uh, not only did they recover the lands of ancient Israel, all the promised lands, but expanded them as well. And he was still working on some of his neighbors at the time of his death. He, uh, he was able to forge alliances, he was able to conquer people, and he was able um, to impose an order uh, on his own population uh, by, by, um, by law, by terror, and, uh, and, and by economic prosperity. Uh, he really did bring a lot of business into the region, and his building projects alone ended up um, making many individual craftsmen uh, uh, very uh, very wealthy, <laughs> but also yes. you know they were just good for the economy. People were spending money because of these these massive projects that he had. He was even sending construction crews to the far reaches of the Mediterranean to um, to to build to build great plazas and boulevards and, uh, and theaters in, in, in distant places. That's how great his fame was uh, for, the, for his ability to start these projects, design something beautiful, and then finish them. Of course, he's hearing about it and knows the speculation about the Messiah mm-hmm. uh, that you indicate was a common conversation throughout the land. And perhaps, you write, Herod thought he could stake a credible claim to that title, and so he mints coins, doesn't he, yes. uh, with a star, one of the yes. two common symbols of the Messiah. Yes. Uh, he wanted to strongly suggest that he was the Messiah, and he made a great show of, um, of, of, of practicing uh, Judaism, of, of conforming himself to the law. You know, he kept a kosher house. He, uh, he, he, uh, he, he, he rebuilt the temple uh, and, and made it something even more grand and more glorious than Solomon had built in the initial temple. So this is, these are all bona fides um, for, for his claim to the Messiah. So he, he's wondering, well, am I the Messiah? So right. he puts the question to the priests in Jerusalem, and, uh, and, and they, they meet, and they, they have the debate, they have the discussion, and they were not persuaded that he was the Messiah. And they cited several points in, in the Torah where it said that they could, they could not be ruled by a foreigner, Okay, he was a foreigner, and so they relay this to him, and he does what he was famous for doing. He massacred the priests who had put forth uh, their their um, their resistance to his claim. Uh, so, so he made it clear that he wasn't accepting that. He wanted the word to go out that he was the Messiah, and it's quite possible that a lot of people believed him to be the Messiah and staked their faith in that. As, as, as 400 years later, almost 500 years later, some of the church fathers, Jerome, Epiphanius, said that there were still people in the Holy Land who called themselves Herodians mm-hmm. because they believed that the Messiah would come from the house of Herod. That's how persuasive Herod was in his own time. Even though he was a murderous tyrant, the people believed that God was working through this murderous tyrant and that he was the one chosen for their time. And uh, the, three, the three different groups that we find, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Essenes, uh, seem to agree that uh, the, the, the um, Messiah 
Lincoln's arrival was uh, was imminent. Yes. And uh, and uh, so there was a lot of expectation. And this is where we come to the point that the the paths of Herod and Joseph were destined to converge, weren't they? Oh, certainly. Certainly. I mean, uh, if you think about it, Joseph was a craftsman. He was a carpenter living in boom times for carpenters. Never before had there been such work, you know, such abundant work for carpenters on a grand scale. So Joseph really could have enjoyed great prosperity in his time. We don't know uh, if he did. He seems to have been uh, uh, someone who met the bills and uh, and was able to put food on the table. He doesn't seem to have been prosperous in his lifetime. But but there were carpenters who really did uh, did achieve great wealth. There's one called Simon the Temple Builder. We found his temple, and it's grand. You know, he really did build himself a magnificent temple. So there was work to be had. There was work to be done. And, and surely Joseph and his son Jesus benefited from the great availability of work for carpenters in that time. And so Herod had uh, some reason to boast about what he was able to accomplish. But as you pointed out, he killed many people close to him yes. while trying to keep up the appearance of being a good Jew. And so he... His time is, in his reign, he places himself in the limelight, while Joseph, you point out, grew up in obscurity. Yes, yes. In this little no-account village in the middle of nowhere, you know, Joseph grew up there. Is It would have been a quiet life, and uh, that was probably by design. They, they, the, the family of David probably did not want to draw too much attention to itself, they knew that they would be a magnet for suspicion, so they probably just tried to keep things quiet. Um, it seems from the archaeological record that they there were a few houses there. Uh, they practiced simple trades, and they practiced agriculture there. And it seems from their agricultural methods uh, that they were that they were um, in the orbit of uh, influence of the Essenes. That would have been the religious mo- movement that was most influential uh, among the, the people in Nazareth. I was surprised to read that uh, still today, uh, you write, Herod is credited with several world records, including largest palace ever built, largest plaza, and largest royal portico. Yeah, we're used to thinking of him as as a villain and as as a kind of a uh, a nincompoop who was who was frustrated in his in his uh, you know uh, schemes to to get the baby Jesus, but he was he was really a brilliant man. As I said, he earned that title Herod the Great even while he was still alive, and he was a master diplomat and he was a master builder. He was very good at what he did. He was able to reign for a long time. He was he was a murderer. He was mad. Uh, he was paranoid, and uh, and he was a wicked he was a wicked ruler. But he had a certain greatness in the natural order. These these skills he had were really outsized, and and it's quite possible that he was even assisted by by the um, by uh, he was even assisted by demons by by angelic intelligence mm. who wanted him very much to succeed and to look like the Messiah because I'm sure that the demons knew that he was not. And then maybe why he spent his reign in the limelight with that kind of help that he uh, he strove to keep up the appearance of Jewish observance. And 
Um, you write that he was a master diplomat. He would present a friendly face until the moment he didn't. And by then it was too late yes. because then the violence began. Yes. Um, he arranged the murder of three of his sons, one brother-in-law, his mother-in-law, and the most beloved of his of his ten wives. Um, and in the meantime, as we said, Joseph is growing up in obscurity. So we're going to take this break now, Mike, and we'll be back to continue our discussion of your book. <laughs> 